0: The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones ended a very volatile week at a very volatile day, down 913 points by the time they rang the bell to stop the bleeding. The uh, final point close 19,173.98. I think you have to go back to December of 2016. Uh, to find the Dow closing that low. Remember, that was before Donald Trump became president. I mean, before he took office. It was after he was elected, but before he assumed the presidency. And, you know, the day was particularly volatile because the futures pre open were up over 900 points. I mean, we were almost up 5%. Uh, and then by the time the market opened, we were only up maybe two, 300. I think we rallied up four or 500 at one point. Uh, before selling off to down almost 900. Then we rallied back to maybe down 300, 400. And then we crashed back down towards the end of the day to finish down 900. Probably there was some extra volatility because there was an option expiration day, which generally can add to the volatility. And since this was already a lot of volatility in there, uh, I'm sure that it did something. But if you look at the total, the Dow dropped by over 4,000 points on the week. That means this was the worst week for the Dow. Uh, ever when it comes to points. right? We've never had a week where the Dow has lost 4,000 points. Of course, the Dow is higher than it's been when it crashed in the past. But if you want to look at percentage declines, this is the worst week since 2008 during the financial crisis. Now, they keep telling us that this is not a financial crisis, yet everything looks like the financial crisis. As I've been saying It is a financial crisis. The difference is this is a bigger financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. In fact, March right now is on track to being the worst month for the stock market percentage decline since 1932, right? That was the depression. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that the market is behaving today the way it behaved in a depression because we're entering another one. Only this is going to be much worse. It's going to be an inflationary depression. It's not going to be the type that we had in uh, 1930s. This is not your great-grandfather's depression. This is a modern-day depression, and it's going to be much, much worse. You know, and when I keep hearing all of the commentary on the, the networks, and mostly, you know, I mainly been watching the CNBC, a uh, little Fox Business uh, when Liz's show is on, But, you know, I watch some of these CNBC guys because I used to be on air with so many of these guys, and they tend to bring on a lot of these big guests during the day. Uh, And then I watch a little bit, you know, watch Fox News and CNN and see how everybody is covering this thing. But everybody seems to be convinced that, hey, you know— this is going to be fine once we get through this, right? Because all we have to do is get through this crisis, right? And they keep saying that this is, you know, man-made. This is not like a normal recession. We brought this on ourselves. We just all decided, you know, not to go to work and to stay home. And so all we have to do is get through this. We just have to, you know, cure the coronavirus or solve this problem and then we're all going to go back to work and, you know, no harm, no foul. Everything is going to be fine. The market's going to come roaring back. You know, it's going to make new highs. These are the greatest buys of a lifetime. All we have to do is get through this tunnel until we see the light. And of course, the way that everybody wants to get through the tunnel is with the government uh, giving us a bunch of money. You know, I actually saw one guy, I forget his name, and he was on CNBC. I remember that. And he was like, hey, no problem. The government can just bail everybody out. We have to bail out all the workers because, you know, it's not their fault that there's the coronavirus. We just, you know, they want to go to work, but we told them not to. So we got to give them money. Uh, we got to bail out all the companies. It's not their fault, right? It's not the movie theater's fault that people are staying home. I mean, they want to go to the movies, but, you know, they're trying to be patriotic Americans. They're doing their share. They're staying home watching Netflix. And, uh, you know, so we should bail out the movie theaters and, of course, everybody else because people, you know, they go out to the movies and they also go out to eat in a restaurant. They're not going there. We got to bail out the restaurant owners. And the guy even said, we got to bail out all the state governments because the state governments don't have the resources because they still have to pay all their workers. Right. But if now all their uh, taxpayers aren't paying taxes anymore, well, they need money to pay their workers. So all we have to do is kind of have the U.S. government pay for everything and then we'll be fine which is so laughable and it shows you how little people understand basic economics or the situation of the united states i mean first of all i mean where's the money going to come from to pay everybody well they well that's easy right we're, we're just going to we're just going to print it up right i mean because the, the states don't have a printing press and the federal government has a printing press so we could just print up money but people don't realize that when we print money the mechanism for doing that is the government issues bonds and then the Federal Reserve buys those bonds or the Federal Reserve goes into the market and buys bonds from other people who already own them. And so the Fed's balance sheet is going to explode, uh, you know, to $10 trillion or $20 trillion. And if everything is so easy, if all we have to do is get through this crisis and the government just goes into debt and borrows all this money to pay everybody, what happens when the crisis is over and the Fed's got a $10 trillion or $20 trillion balance sheet? How can we possibly shrink that balance sheet and say it's business as usual? You know, How are we gonna let interest rates rise when there's so much debt, right? I mean, some people don't realize that. They're not thinking that far ahead. Now, maybe they think, well, okay, well, we never have to shrink the balance sheet. Well, then we permanently monetize the debt. What is gonna to happen to the US dollar when this liquidity squeeze is over? And I'm gonna to get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, if we can't um, withdraw that liquidity, uh, then the dollar is going to completely implode. But what is going to be the ability of the economy to repay all that debt that we racked up? You know, during World War II, and I you know, keep going back to the World War II analogies, but in World War II, the U.S. government ran up a tremendous amount of debt, but it ran up the debt legitimately. It didn't have the Federal Reserve create money, right? It, it, the, the money was loaned to the U.S. government by the American people. And so when the war was over, there was this huge national debt, which had to be paid down. And it was paid down. I mean, One of the ways we paid it down is the emergency withholding tax on wages, the income tax that was implemented during the war to pay for the war. One of the reasons that they didn't end it when the war was over is because they had to repay the debt because we had borrowed all this money fighting World War II. We had this huge national debt. And it got paid down. We actually paid off all the money that we borrowed during World War II. How did we do that? Because the government kept collecting all these taxes. And since it didn't have a war to fight, it was able to use that tax revenue to pay off all the bondholders. So because we had a viable economy with a lot of savings, we were able to borrow that savings to fight the war and then repay the savings after we won the war. Well, how do we repay this now? It's impossible. In fact, I think it was a different guy on there. He kept saying the economy needs credit. Everybody needs credit. And so the Federal Reserve has to supply the credit. Except this guy doesn't understand the difference. This is another big so-called expert who was on CBC. He doesn't know the difference between real credit that comes from savings and the fake credit that the Federal Reserve conjures into existence just by creating money. There's no resources that are made available to the government. There's just inflation. You're just printing money. Everybody is still operating under the delusion that the money reprint has real value. And they keep you know, going back to the idea that everything is going to be fine. right? We just have to you know, make the sacrifice. And, and, and they don't realize that the sacrifices we made in World War II were completely different. I keep hearing people talking about this. It's not a sacrifice if everybody gets bailed out. The sacrifice is when you don't get bailed out, right? You have to, you have to deal with it yourself like people did in, in World War II. I mean, they didn't get bailed out. I mean, yes, we drafted 16 million soldiers in World War II and uh, they got paid. They got paid. Privates made 50 bucks a month. I checked online to see what they made. It's not like I knew it. it was, yeah, I checked. Minimum wage was 30 cents an hour back then. The minimum wage was imposed during the Depression uh, and so in 1941, it was 30 cents an hour. And so that was basically like 50 bucks a month. And so that's all these guys were paid. Now, you know, I mean, they didn't have to buy their food or their rent. So, you know, they got that. But to the extent that they were married and they had to send the money back to their wives, you know, a lot of a lot of guys were married, had kids when they were 22, 23, 24, who were fighting as privates. And I'm sure they probably made a little bit more than minimum wage working in the private sector. Their wives had to get by on $50 a month, right? They didn't get any kind of bailout. It wasn't their fault that their, uh, you know, that their husband had to go off to war. Now, the officers made a little bit more. The second lieutenants made $150 a month, but these were older guys. I mean, these guys were probably in their late 20s, early to mid 30s, college-educated guys, right? You had to be a college grad to become an officer. So a lot of these guys that became officers, I mean, $150 uh, a month, I mean, that was, what, Made, that was three times the minimum wage, which would be the equivalent of $40,000 a year today. I mean, some guys might have made less than that in the private sector, but there's probably a lot of guys in their late 20s, early 30s, professional guys with college degrees. Very few people had college degrees back in 1941. So if you had one, you were you know, really a top earner because 90% of the people didn't go. Uh, so I'm sure there were plenty of these guys that were making 50, 60, 70, $100,000 equivalent. They didn't make that much money You know, only you know in in, in the dollars back then, but in the equivalent, I'm sure they did. And then they had to go off to war. Well, what did their wife do? She had maybe she had three or four kids, and the the husband goes off to war, and she's getting you know half of what their income is. Well, they had savings, or maybe the woman pitched in and she went and got a job and earned some money on her own. Nobody was looking to the government. World War II was not the fault of any American, but every American sucked up. Uh, But the difference is, we had a viable economy we could withstand World War II, which is way worse. When I keep hearing about this is unprecedented, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, we've never seen anything exactly like this. But as far as things that disrupt the economy, you know, this is not as bad as World War II, right? Even though this is happening all over the world. Again, as I said in my last podcast, so was World War II. That's why it was a world war, right? And in fact, World War I was, was worse than this, right? But I mean, I'm not saying this is a cakewalk. This is obviously a problem. But if we had the type of economy that we had during World War II, we could handle the problem. The fact of the matter is we can't handle the problem because all of the people who were talking about, hey, everything is going to be fine after uh, this war against the coronavirus is over. First of all, number one, they have no idea how long it's going to take. I mean, It keeps getting worse every day. I mean, just today, California, New York are basically ordering everybody home except, you know, essential businesses. I mean, people are being ordered home. So it seems like it's escalating. So, I mean, there's really no end in sight to this thing, right? But to think that, okay, maybe it's a month, maybe it's two months, who the hell knows how long it's going to be, right? So that's number one, because the longer it is, the more expensive it is for everybody to get bailed out, right? So we don't even know. And even if we think the coast is clear and we all go back to work, what if all of a sudden we were wrong and the cases start sprouting out again? And now everybody back to your house, back in self-quarantine again. So we don't even know. But even if, let's say, that we can win this battle relatively quickly, somebody comes up with a cure, we all get inoculated and everything is over in a couple months, right? It's not going to go back to normal because what people don't understand is it wasn't good. Everybody thinks we had this great economy before uh, this came out of left field. Before we had the black swan or the coronavirus, everything was great, but, but it wasn't, it was a bubble. and saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie it loves a good plot twist listen to nerd smart money podcast on your favorite podcast app future you will thank you and the coronavirus pricked the bubble and that doesn't mean that after the coronavirus problem is over that the bubble just magically reflates it's not going to happen there's no way to reflate this bubble the bubble has popped it's because we didn't have a viable economy before the pin pricked the bubble. That's why we're not going to have a recovery when the pin is gone because we can't, you know, put that back together. Once this whole house of cards comes tumbling down, it's down. I mean, I think a good analogy is really from the Wizard of Oz. You know, you have the great powerful Wizard of Oz and, you know. Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow go down there and they look up and it's this huge guy and there's fire everywhere and he's got this thundering voice and they're all kind of scared of him right he's this big larger than life guy until little Toto pulls back the curtain and they see it's just a little old man with a with a bunch of uh, you know levers uh and and he's really not what they thought well I think that's what's happening here um with the U.S. I think this collapse is going to really expose the U.S. and the U.S. economy for what it was. I mean, it was an illusion, right? We all thought it was much stronger and much bigger than it was, but the coronavirus is going to expose the truth. It's going to be laid bare for everybody to see. And so it's not going to be fine uh, when Uh, this is over even if it is over soon which it may not be and i think another thing that is going to help you know expose this is going to be the dollar and you know the dollar has been rising uh you know so far that milkshake theory is uh is working right in that the dollar is being bid up because so many people around the world are needing dollars this is a massive liquidity crisis a solvency crisis and the world because the dollar is a reserve currency, a lot of transactions, a lot of debt around the world is dollar denominated. And now there is a rush for dollars. And so the dollar is going up. And that is actually exacerbating the problems for other countries. It's actually helping the US. See, one of the reasons that we can bail everybody out or that we think we can bail everybody out is that as we're printing money and the Fed is printing it faster than ever, much, much faster than it did uh, during the uh crisis. And again, the reason that I knew that QE4 was going to be so big is because I knew the bubble that they inflated with QE1, 2, and 3 was so much bigger than the one that they inflated uh, with 1% interest rates under Greenspan. So I knew that it would take much more to try to reflate that bubble than what it took to reflate the one that popped in 08. And, And that's why this is happening, right? But the reason that it appears that all this is viable is because the dollar is going up So if the dollar is going up Even though we're printing them Well let's let's just keep printing more You know in fact I saw some interview with some guy Very you know progressive You know liberal democrat guy Or democratic socialist And he's like well you know no one's asking how to pay for this. You know, so like, he was, this guy happened to be African-American. He's like, you know, whenever the white folk need money, you know, they have no problem sending checks, right? So like, you know, why don't we do something if there's money for everything, if it doesn't matter what it costs and we can always find the money and we don't have to ask, you know, how are we gonna pay for it? You know, why not solving income inequality? Why don't, yeah, why don't we just send poor people bigger checks? Hey, why don't we just cut the African-Americans reparation checks, right? I mean, if it doesn't matter, I mean, we're printing up all this money and we think there's no negative consequences, then let's print a few trillion more and let's just solve income inequality, right? You're gonna have more and more of this from the left if the right has no pushback and like everything is on the table. I mean, based on what Donald Trump said today, you know, not only did they extend the the, the filing requirement and the payment requirement to um, July 15th to file your income tax, right? So you now have until July 15th to file and pay, So if you owe money, you don't have to pay until July 15th uh, without any interest or penalties. And who knows how many days they're going to keep extending that. I mean, who knows, right? I mean, if the problem is still here, they're going to keep extending it. I was joking. We should make the day to file your taxes November 3rd. And the reason I, I think it should be November 3rd is because that's election day. That's the day that we vote. And I've always thought it made more sense if we pay our taxes on the same day that we vote because then people will be pretty pissed off when they go to the voting booths because they now have spent all this time doing their taxes and they'll have a little bit more of an idea of how expensive government is. So maybe if we made people vote on tax day, uh, they would be pissed enough to vote for people that want less government so we can have lower taxes. My father used to always joke that they should make uh, the tax filing day April 1st because that was April Fool's Day and he thought everybody was a fool uh, for paying an income tax that no law required them to pay. Well, the fools now are the ones that you know think that you know there's a free lunch here. We can print all the money that we want. But getting back to the point I was just making, the fact that the dollar is going up is allowing us to think that we can get away with this. And so it's making it easier for us. But it's making it harder simultaneously for all the other countries. I mean, like take Australia, right? So Australia has the same problem, right? They have people not working. They got the coronavirus. So they want to have bailouts right it's a mistake to do it there too but they want to give money to their people and so now they have to run larger deficits or they have to print more Australian dollars and the minute they're going to do that oh my god the Australian dollar drops right because it's not the reserve currency and oh you're going to debase your currency you're going to run bigger deficits and now the currency drops against the dollar which is the reserve which exacerbates all the problems in that economy right because now any dollar debt Becomes uh, becomes more expensive to service, to repay. And then all of a sudden, you get capital flight, international investors seeing the Australian dollar go, although they pull my money out. This happens even worse in a lot of the emerging economies. So they're actually suffering more because they're stuck in this system where the US dollar is the reserve currency, but it shouldn't be the reserve currency because we're exacting a heavy toll to make it be the reserve currency. People are having to supply us with goods and supply us with credit. So we've done so much damage to the global economy because they've been dumb enough to accept our worthless IOUs uh, that used to be backed by and redeemable in gold, but the fact that they allow us to write checks and they never cash them, that screwed up the the global economy. And now they're feeling an even bigger pain because it exacerbates all of their economic downturns because now if they want to, you know, have an expansionary policy, if they want to go more into debt to try to stimulate or bail people out, they immediately feel the consequences in the foreign exchange market, which exacts consequences in their interest rates. I mean, rates go up. It pushes up consumer prices. So they, they really feel the consequences that we are completely spared from because the dollar is the reserve currency. And when people are fleeing their own currencies and they're going into the dollar, right, because they're worried about the problems in these countries is because, oh, they're printing too much money. They're borrowing too much money. They don't even stop to think that the dollars that they're buying, that the United States is printing even more money, that we have even bigger debts. See, that, that doesn't even enter into the equation because people just de facto go to the dollar without even thinking, right? Because it doesn't matter how much debt the United States has. It doesn't matter how much money they print because that's the reserve currency. Well, it doesn't matter until it does. But I think one thing that might happen soon, it may even happen Sunday night, we'll see, is there could be some intervention, some coordinated intervention by central banks to bring the dollar down and to alleviate some of this pressure in the dollar funding system. Because I think if they do that, number one, there will be a big rally in stocks around the world and the United States. In fact, the dollar was way down this morning. You had like a 2.5% or 3% gain, the Aussie dollar, 2% gain. Uh, in the um, Canadian. I think the pound sterling was up two and a half. That's one of the reasons the markets were up so much. That's one of the reasons the Dow was up a 1,000 points pre-market. That's why a lot of the foreign markets were way up because this was something that was alleviating some pressure. So I think really this is all they've got left up their sleeves now is to try to stop this and provide dollars uh, by lowering the dollar and, and taking some of the upward pressure off the dollar and therefore some of the downward pressure on these other economies. Now, it, it would happen eventually anyway. The dollar is going to collapse anyway, even if they don't intervene. But I think they can see the stress in the system right now from an overvalued dollar. And it is overvalued, right? It doesn't, it's, they're buying it even though it, it's overvalued and it's getting more overvalued. So I think we could see a, uh, a intervention. And I think everybody's going to think this is great when it happens, including Donald Trump, which is one of the reasons I think that we'll have it, because certainly the Trump administration is on board. And the intervention is something that the Treasury agrees to. It's not the Fed, right? It's not the central bank that intervenes in the foreign exchange market, right? It's the Treasury. And obviously, Donald Trump, we know that he wants a weaker dollar. He's been complaining since he was elected that the dollar is too strong. He wants it down. And I think the emerging markets desperately need the dollar to come down. So I think that we can have that intervention and that could spark a rally in the stock market. But it is not going to be good news for the US because I think once we break the momentum of the dollar, once the dollar starts to fall, it's not going to stop and it's going to build up a life of its own and it's going to keep on going down and down and down. and It's like going to be a snowball going down a hill. And again, as the dollar weakens, it's going to expose the the rest of the problem in the U.S. economy and our vulnerability because then we're going to have to deal with the consequences of all the money printing and all the deficits. And we're just not prepared uh, to do it. You know, in, in 1941, right, we had a viable economy that was based on savings and production. And in fact, during the Second World War, we utilized all of our productive capacity to make goods for the military instead of consumer goods. Now, that didn't benefit... The people at home because they couldn't consume them but we have the resources to to build the arsenal of democracy right to defeat uh uh, the nazis and imperial japan but we don't have that right we have this economy that is a complete pyramid and we just knock the bottom out of it right it's all based on consumers going out and shopping and spending money and going out to malls and going out to restaurants and going out to theaters and going to sporting events, right? Not working and producing stuff. We get all that from the rest of the world. They ship it in and we just you know, kind of go out there and, and, and you know, service with one another. Well, we're not doing that. So this whole thing has come collapsing down is you know, that old nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men Could not put Humpty together again. So we are having a great fall. And after we do, it is going to be impossible to put it back together again because we're not going to be able to print enough money because somewhere along the way, the value of the money we're printing is going to crash. We're going to have a dollar crisis. We're going to have runaway inflation. And then we're going to have to make some hard choices. Then people are going to have to actually sacrifice. You know, sacrificing isn't sitting at home watching TV while the government bails you out right? sacrifice is actually having to roll up your sleeves and do a lot of hard work. We, 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 we have a date with a destiny this time, but it's a different destiny. We're going to have to stare into the abyss and realize there's nothing there, right? Uh, our retirement is gone. We've, we've bought in to a myth from our, our leaders, and hopefully we learn the right lesson, right? Not the wrong lesson. The liberals are going to try to take advantage of this, the socialists, to get us to blame it all on capitalism and say that the problem was we had too much freedom and not enough government, when the reality is the reverse, we didn't have enough freedom. We had too much government. That's why the economy was so vulnerable. That's why we had this gigantic bubble, and that's why this pin was able to do so much damage, and we've barely even seen it. It's going to get so much worse before the extent of the damage is is revealed. I want to talk about some of the other markets that had big moves today because, again, another real big day in the bond market. As I mentioned yesterday, the yields on shorter maturities are negative. And in fact, now not only is the yield on the three month negative three basis points, but now the yield on the six month is negative two basis points. So you loan your money to the government for six months. And then six months later, you get back just a little bit less than you loaned. Crazy, but this is the world we're living in. But we did have a big rise in the bond market. The yield on the 10-year came all the way back down to spot 8.5. So back below one with a zero handle again on the yield. 30-year bond uh, also had a big rally. So the yield came down to one spot 4.2. Remember, just the other day, we were back at 1.9. So we have massive volatility in the bond markets. Anybody who thinks the bonds are safe These are extremely volatile vehicles right now. They're going all over the place. There's no safety. There's lots of volatility there. Of course, eventually, I think they're going to collapse. The most important thing is going to be that the dollar is going to collapse and all bonds are are an IOU for dollars. So if the dollar crashes, you know, What's, what's a dollar worth that you have to wait 30 years to get? It's worth a lot less than the one that you have right now because at least the one you have right now, you can spend it quickly before it loses more value and buy something. If you have to wait 30 years to spend that money, there's going to be nothing left 30 years from now to spend. On the other hand, real money, gold, had another nice day. You know, gold was up uh, $27.40. We're back at uh, $1,499 as I'm talking. So almost all the way back up to $1,500. Gold was strong today. Even though uh, you had a uh, strong dollar at the end of the day, gold stocks had another drubbing. You know, they're again, very volatile. Gold stocks were down. But again, option expiration today. I have a feeling that uh, a lot of the calls had some pressure or the stocks had pressure. So some of the calls would expire worthless. So people who may have been gambling on gold stocks going up by buying calls that expired now, you know, they're, you know, they're going to nail those stocks because they're not going to go up. And the people who bought those calls are going to lose their money. And the people who sold them will have dodged a bullet and they'll get to keep uh, their premium, you know. I haven't really been talking much about Bitcoin, and you know, whenever Bitcoin rallies, I look on my my Twitter. And by the way, I'm almost at two hundred thousand uh, Twitter followers. I'm one hundred ninety nine thousand five hundred and change. So I'm sure that I am going to be up to two hundred thousand uh, over this weekend. Uh, you know, I'm going to look out for the guy that is number two hundred thousand if I happen to be uh, watching at the time. Uh, so we'll see. But, um, but don't everybody hold off to be the 200,000th, then nobody will, uh, will, will, will uh, you know, follow me. But I noticed, and obviously there's a lot of uh, Bitcoin trolls that hang out on, on my Twitter. Uh, but, you know, Bitcoin rallies, like it had a big rally today. You know, this morning it got up to almost 7,200. And they're like, oh, why aren't you saying anything about Bitcoin? Look, look how much Bitcoin is up. Well, the reason I'm not saying anything about Bitcoin is because Bitcoin has already cracked. The Bitcoin story is over. The chart looks horrible. It's just consolidating, waiting for uh, its next big fall. In fact, it fell today. In fact, after it got above 7,000 in the morning, uh, later in the day, around the time of the stock market close, it went back down to 5,800. I mean, that whole rally is just BS. I mean, as I'm recording this, it's about 6,200. There's a lot of volatility in Bitcoin. So when you're volatile, yeah, you're going to have 10% rallies, 20% and big drops. But if you look at a chart, all this volatility is happening below major support. The entire bullish chart pattern, any formation that you think is there, it's completely broken down. And so Bitcoin's going to fall, right? And the, the story that was supposed to get it going was that the institutions were going to put big money in. They were going to include Bitcoin in their portfolio. The institutions, first of all, are shell-shocked. They've just lost a ton of money. And they realize that had they had money in Bitcoin, it wouldn't have mattered. They'd have lost a ton of money in Bitcoin, too. So whatever story there may have been to convince institutions to buy uh, Bitcoin, assuming any of them were dumb enough to think about doing it, well, they're not going to do it now, right? So it's off the table. So where is the new money going to come from? There is no new money coming in. It's just the existing money trying to get out. And that's going to happen. I mean, once these hodlers get tired of hoping, and you know, a lot of these guys are going to lose their jobs too, and they're going to need some money. And they can't take their Bitcoin to the grocery store and buy food because the grocer's not accepting Bitcoin. You know, he is accepting um, paper. And if they ever accept something other than paper in the future, they'll be accepting real money. They'll be accepting silver. You know, silver was up about 50, 60 cents today. Uh, but still about 120. It's like silver is 1260 and gold is about 1500. So it's still almost 120 ounces of silver uh, for your gold. By the way, things are very, very busy at Shift Gold. And so you have to, you know, they're talking to everybody. They're doing the best they can. So, you know, cut them a little slack, right? But everybody's getting their order filled. We're locking in great prices. You're just going to have to wait two to three months to get your physical silver. You know, but hopefully you have another two to three months before you actually need it, right, before things get that bad. That's one of the reasons I want people to have these one-ounce silver rounds or small bars, because when things really get bad, right, and you actually need to spend something other than dollars, they're not going to be accepting your Bitcoin, but they will be accepting your silver, So you should be getting it now. So that's why I'm not talking about it. I think the story is over. Uh, It's a a walking dead currency, crypto asset, whatever it is. It's just that the people that own it don't know it yet, right? They're still waiting. In fact, they're looking at what's happening now, hyperinflation, all this. Oh, Bitcoin's going to go. Bitcoin's going to go. Okay, but it's not going. And then they take some consolation in the fact that, well, gold's not going up either. So that explains why Bitcoin's not going up gold's not going up because people need liquidity. And a lot of the institutions that have gold want out. I know from a fact, as a gold salesman, I have a gold company, that people are buying it as fast as they can, both gold and silver. People aren't buying Bitcoin. If they were, the price would be going up. You know, I heard somebody try to say on CNBC that, you know, uh, people need liquidity, and when you need liquidity, you sell your your Apple, you sell your gold, you sell your Bitcoin, except these institutions that have all these stocks, they don't have any Bitcoin. There's no big players in the institutional world, in the asset management world, that are selling Bitcoin to get liquidity. They're not. They are selling gold, because gold is a big asset that is owned around the world, but Bitcoin is owned maybe in a couple of you know funds that are just all crypto funds right but if you're talking about bigger funds that have big positions in U.S. stocks and global stocks and now they have margin calls or redemptions they're not selling their Bitcoin they don't have any Bitcoin to sell so the reality is in the Bitcoin market there are no buyers I mean there are some buyers but the price is not going up because the guys that are in it the whales are getting out They are unloading. They are dumping the coins they pumped up, and if you're holding on or you're buying, you're just going to be a bag holder. So if you're smart, just get out, right? And you could thank me later. Hey, on a final note, you know, speaking about uh, you know my YouTube channel and my my Twitter, you know, on YouTube now I'm I'm almost at two hundred and ninety thousand subscribers. So if you're not a subscriber to my YouTube and you listen to my podcasts on Shift Radio go over to YouTube and subscribe so I can get my subscriber count up and you know maybe watch the, the, a little bit of the video and I'll get my views up. But if you are watching on YouTube, and I've noticed a couple of my last podcasts on YouTube, I can see the, the view counts and I almost got 100,000 views. So it's about double the number of views that I normally get, even though I'm putting out more content. So more people are watching more content so I can see like my YouTube Uh, uh, views are basically tripled from where they were. So I'm really getting a lot more action on my my YouTube channel. I don't really see the numbers so much, the actual numbers on the podcast, but I noticed that my podcast, which is on shiftradio.com, I'm now number 11 in business. So the 11th uh, most listened to podcast in the business category. But if you look for all podcasts, I can see on iTunes the top 200 and I don't make it. But the number 10 podcast in business is on that list. So for me to get in the top 200 podcasts of all categories, I just need to move ahead of the guy that's number 10. I'm right behind him at number 11. And the way everybody who's listening on YouTube can help push me up into the top 200 and push me into the top 10 in business is if you've been listening to my podcast on YouTube, go to shiftradio.com or anywhere that has you know, iTunes or Stitcher or someplace like that and listen to it there too. Maybe listen to the first half on YouTube and listen to the second half over there. That way I get credit on both platforms because if I can move my YouTube audience over to uh, the podcast, to iTunes, I can shoot up in the rankings. And then if people see that my podcast is more popular, that might you know tempt people to you know t- give it a try, to listen to it. Hey, what's this? I never saw this in the top 200, or maybe we get into the top 100 or something like that. So the more people that are listening, the more popular my podcast gets, the more people will listen, and therefore the more popular it gets. And by the way, too, when you go over there, put up a review, I mean, first of all, you could just, I got almost 3,000 reviews on the podcast right now. Uh, so you could just go there and put a star on it, give it five stars or write a review. I think the more stars there are, the more reviews there are. I think I've only asked people to do this one time in all the years I've been doing. In fact, I just did my 550th podcast yesterday. And I think just one time I asked people to actually you know, review uh, my, my videos and, and thumbs up them. But yeah, no, always do that. Uh, Every time you watch one of my videos, put that you like it. Just you know, take a second to give it a thumbs up. You don't even have to give it a comment. If you wanna include a comment, you know, I do try to read them, I can't read them all. And you'll notice that sometimes I, I, you know, I respond to them. So if you say something interesting. Now the best way to get me to read your comment is to keep it short because I really can't read the long one. So think about what you wanna say and say it in as few words as possible. Think about your comment as if it's a tweet, right? If it's short, you got a good chance that I'll read it. If it's long, I just don't have the time. And so I don't end up reading any of it. So if you put down a really long diatribe and you think you're giving me all this great information, I ain't going to read it. Now, maybe you're putting it there for somebody else. Maybe you think somebody else is going to read it. But I have a feeling that they're not going to read it either. I think the best way to get your, your comment read is to be very succinct and to think of a good point and then think of the fewest words Uh, that you can make that point. And then you have a better chance of other people reading it, including me. And then you have a better chance of me me commenting on it. But so every time you watch the YouTube video, give it a thumbs up, even if you don't like it, because I know there are people who give it a thumbs down who don't even listen to it, right? I have all the Peter Schiff haters out there and they're out there and they sit by their computers. And as soon as they get, you know, a, 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 a message from YouTube that I have a new podcast, they quickly go over there and give it a thumbs down, right? They don't bother to listen to it. They just want to thumbs down it because they don't like me. It doesn't matter what I say. They just want to give me a thumbs down. So go listen to it and and put a thumbs up, make a comment, go to iTunes, listen to the podcast and re- review it or put in a comment. But again, I need everybody that listens on shift radio right if you only listen on shift radio or i you know I, itunes or, or stitcher and you've never gone to my youtube channel go there just you know subscribe anyway just go over there and you know when i did that live thing i, I uh the other night i did a four hour and i got over 160 uh, views on it already but a lot of people were watching it live and you can only watch it live on youtube and if you want to know the next time i do one and i'm sure i'm going to do one again Uh, But if you want to get it, you know, be informed of that, you got to be a subscriber to my YouTube channel. It's not on my podcast. So all of the podcast people, if that's your preferred way to listen, just go over uh, to, for this particular podcast, right, go and also listen to it on YouTube. Again, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. Just listen to some of it, right? And you can split it up. And in fact, you could go, you know, listen to some older ones if you want. But the key is to listen to this one. But the more you listen to, you know, the more credit I'm going to get, then... If you have always listened on YouTube and you've never listened on shiftradio.com or you know, iTunes, go over there and listen to the podcast. Now, I know I just, I just mentioned this at the end of the podcast. I probably should have put it in the beginning of the podcast because then, uh, then you could have uh, you know, stopped halfway through and listened to the rest of it. Uh, but um, in any event, go back and at least listen to the first five or 10 minutes over again. I don't even know if you have to listen to that much. But go and go over to you know shift Radio and listen to some of it over there. And then the next time I do a video, right a YouTube video or a podcast, do the same thing, right? Listen to some of it on YouTube and then listen to more of it on Shift Radio or iTunes. That way I'm going to get credit on both platforms. I'll get more views on YouTube. I'll get more people listening to my podcast on iTunes and then I'll go up in the rankings on both and then more people might see me, more people might find out about me. I don't know, is that cheating a little bit? Maybe, I don't know what the rules are, if there are any rules when it comes to trying to get higher in the rankings on podcasts or YouTubes. But I'm sure other people who have podcasts and are on YouTube are constantly, you know, inviting uh, their listeners, subscribers to tell their friends and to review uh, their, their podcasts and write positive reviews. So I'm not the only one that's cheating. Maybe I'm the only one that's not cheating. But anyway, all's fair in podcasting. Uh, so do that for me and I will continue to put out good content for you.